Welcome to Weekday Worship. Weekday Worship! Again, James' <laughs> uh, summer voice. Summer voice? It's not summer. It's still spring, my friend. It feels like summer to me. Sure it does. You what don't is, have children in school when, still. When is summer officially you're on, start You're on for break you? from school yourself. Yes. Some of us are not on break When does summer officially start for you? Uh, I would say Memorial Day. Memorial Day is the inauguration. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's kind of what I... Yeah. Yeah. Are you a big, like... Grill out on Memorial Day, inaugurate the summer, wear American uh, I grill out on every shorts. nice day outside possible. <laughs> so That's true. He's a grill master. I'm a grill master. I love the Ever grill. Ever since he got his, uh, his smoker. No, 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 no. I, no, I mean, I grilled. Now I do smoke things. You got to be careful with that. I smoke meat on the rec tech. Yes. Um, and you're gonna, but you're I've gonna, always been a griller. You're going to wear that baby out this summer. Oh, man, I've worn it out this spring. Yeah. I do probably two things a week on that thing. Two things a week. Yeah, we smoked uh, last night. We put a, we did a chuck a beef chuck roast, like two of them a that beef totaled chuck roast. Yeah, like three pounds each, and uh, put that on the grill. It was it's sort of what people say is the best substitute for maybe a brisket at a much cheaper price, and mm. so I'm not a man of significant means. Uh, an express brisket. Yeah, uh, and it, yeah, so it cooks uh, faster, and uh, but man, it was delicious, muy delicioso. Wow. What so? What's on the? What are we having for Memorial Day? I don't know. I haven't thought that far ahead, man. I'm thinking I got to do some wings. I haven't smoked any wings yet. Smoked some wings. Yeah. So I'd like to try some wings on the smoker. Mm. Um, I'm still in experimental phase, right? Yeah, like, yeah. there's some things I know that I can do pretty easily and successfully, but I'm yeah. I'm liking to experiment with some stuff. So any big summer plans at the Royal House? Um, we're still working on that. We're working on it. We're, we're working it out. No known vacations at this point. Uh, a couple short trips. We have an X-29 retreat that Betsy and I will go to with uh, lead pastors and wives. In, Where are we uh, at? Vegas? We're in uh, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're avoiding the slots this year. Um, yeah, no, so we'll be in Colorado in um, July for a few days. Oh, beautiful. Um, and I think we'll take probably not long week vacations, but maybe something like a few, a few like, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday kind of trips to some nearby Visit some people, like family, or get away for a couple of days. Do you enjoy the kids at home during the summer? No, <laughs> no, That's no. Not a it's joy. like this really because it's so hot outside in the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't want to be out there, but the alternative is like being inside and on screens and all that. And our our twins are getting to the age where they can start sort of working. They're fifteen. Uh, they're going with Matt Anderson to do a work crew for the wildlife camp so that they will as high schoolers be serving wildlife? on the crew. wildlife is the middle school version of young life okay and so wow. matt anderson at our church is a is a, on the young life staff so he's working camp for like three weeks and so he's recruited josiah enough for him to go work summer with them camps. so that's that's kind of a cool thing what's your favorite summer ministry. camp as a kid i didn't go to summer camp as a kid. not one summer camp Mm-mm. you never went to a summer camp never not even with sports or anything i did like basketball camp i guess probably I mean, basketball camp was a big thing for me. Yeah, I guess I just don't think it like it wasn't overnight camp, right? They were just yeah. day camp kind of things, like three hours in the morning or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. I guess. What about I, you? I, what I are mean, your summer plans? Summer You're out plans? of school. I well, no, false. What's I that? Finished the semester. You finished the semester. <laughs> I had to start the schoolwork. There for is the no summer term Yesterday, so. Wow. We can call it a break from class until June something. Yes. Yes. But some volumes to read. Yes, some volumes to read. I thought I thought I was going to get to say this is the uh, the uh, 
the summer edition, the start of the summer edition of the no. of weekday worship, but James has vetoed that. Yeah, so, no, not till uh, Memorial seriously. Day. Post Memorial Day. Post Memorial Day. Um, so, in, in light of my uh, seminary semester ending, I wanted, first year under first your belt. Year, first year under my belt. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. And you've done well. I think I have. Yeah. You got a four point oh, right? We're at, like a three, a we're at a three point nine one. Three point nine one. What yeah. class got you? Can I ask that? Um, no, because it'll bring up sinful thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I was very upset at the reasons for that. So no. I'm sorry. Is is uh, RTS constructed in such a way where you could do well enough in a single class to get that up to a four I don't, I don't know how that works. Or you I don't will never see possible. a 4.0 because of this class. No, I don't think it's possible. Wow. You're starting to, to darken. I'm sorry. The clouds. <laughs> uh, of summer my... has uh, ended. <laughs> but in light of my semester ending, I wanted yes. to do a fun episode today. Well, I call it fun, but I think it's. It, let's call it serious fun. Can I? Let's call it serious. Can I just fun. say that Caleb, I always have fun with you here. You do. And yeah, like always. Well, I missed it last week. We weren't here last week. Uh, we, yeah, I was deep in the books. We uh, I had a we had a great interview with uh, Rachel Furnish, but I didn't do that last week either. Which was, I had good things about. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Few, and people she was a really wonderful guest. And um, but we recorded it the week before, and yeah. so I had no podcast recording last week, even though mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. uh, publish one last week. But uh, yeah. so I I'm 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 in a weekday worship funk, man. I mm. needed this. Well, so this I is always fun I'm for here me here to serve you. <laughs> So we're, we're having fun. and uh, We're having fun today uh, around church history. <laughs> if, if James knows this. You well, and three but. other listeners <laughs> will enjoy this, I'm sure. James knows very well. Many of you probably, well, some, a lot of you do, but some of you don't, that I love church history. I love talking about church history. I love reading church history. It's because Caleb likes drama. I do, I do like the drama of, <laughs> of uh, church history. Yeah, there's a lot of drama in church history. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I but I thought it'd be fun today to just talk about some some maybe some generalizations, myths, and uh, legends of church history that can be debunked or reworked through or are, are really helpful. I think for a general audience, general Christians to know about um, that help them both just know about their own faith and know some of the history. And also uh, help them in conversations with non-believers. So some of these could be ones that are purported by Christians themselves who probably just say things they don't know what they're talking about. Others could be... Christians do this? Yes. Say things they don't Particularly evangelicals. Oh, wow. Yes. It's quite the allegation. It is. But other, to me, it's interesting. I just want to paint the picture for people. Yeah. So we're going to talk about church history myths. Yes. And you are wearing a shirt with a face of Dwight Schrute that says false on it. Yeah, I feel was, like you did that intentionally. That was definitely intended for you to see <laughs> as what I was coming in to do today. Okay. <laughs> to divide truth from error. Today. <laughs> in, in, in the stylings of Dwight Schrute. Yes. Cool. Yes. The, the great church father, <laughs> Dwight K. Schrute. <laughs> Bishop uh, of Scranton. <laughs> Bishop of Scranton. That is yeah. great. Uh, I like that. Okay. I don't know that that uh, Rain Wilson, who plays Dwight Troop, would love that. No. As he is a uh, quiet. He's a he's like this weird. Uh, it's some sort of Eastern religion that he's into. It, there's a weird name for it. It's very it's very 
interesting. It, hmm. and it's very. It's, it's not hugely known, uh, but he has this podcast called. I can't believe I'm plugging this podcast. It's called <laughs> Metaphysical Milkshake, where he like talks through all this stuff. <laughs> it's pretty wild. False. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. So anyway. Yes. So we're talking about church history today. Church history. Yes. And I. One of the reasons why I think. Can I just say thank yeah, you ahead of time because I feel like you've titled the episode for me. What? Church history myths. And I usually we usually have an episode and then you leave and then I have to like. And you come. I have to like with, put in you a come title up with something ridiculous. in details. Yeah, and then you that criticize me, me that for makes me it, want but... to invite noted guests, but then <laughs> I know they're going to read the titles of these episodes and be like, "What am I getting myself?" Yeah. Into? So I'm glad that I have a title already. Thank yeah. you for that. There you go. A, a, a good title. A clear, concise, <laughs> very, yes, straightforward title. Yes. But I think church history is really important, particularly for uh, us to think through. I don't think a lot of us know church history very well. I think a, a lot of us probably never... I'm on record as saying this is one of my biggest um, maybe uh, regrets or, or you know disappointments in having not gone to seminary myself is that mm-hmm. I have a real... Um, deficiency in my knowledge but of church history. Now, I, like, can, I can read and get up to see, and yeah, I yeah. tend to do more. But, but I just but think about like the milieu that we probably grew up in, which is evangelical, right? A lot of Bible church, you know, uh, 80s, 90s, to early 2000s. Like, I mean, you didn't grow um, up in the 80s and 90s, I get. But you but. know, that whole, that whole era <laughs> was not very keen on... Uh, Scholarship? Well, not... Scho- no, no, no. The, on teaching church history and yeah. what came before us. And, like, I, I honestly, I, I went to a, a, a good church. I went to a Christian school. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me anything about church history. I think yeah. Billy Graham was probably the oldest guy I knew about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Martin Luther. But I think there's a lot of, uh, because of that, I think there's a lot of gaps. And I think there's a lot of things that we think in place of those gaps. Yeah. Which are probably not helpful. Mm-hmm. And can be used against us in conversations when we when we are not very uh up to date on our heritage. Yeah. You know, what, what happened before us. There's but the brothers and sisters that came before us that, you know, uh walked in different centuries. So uh this I mean, this is a fun episode, but but some of this stuff is is really important to very central uh aspects of our faith. Um, and understanding them and, and, and thinking through them and even defending them. Uh, some of the stuff that we may talk about is stuff that I cover in my Doctrine of Scripture class, um, which the guys took, many of the men in our church took this past semester, and I think that was really helpful for them to think through some of that stuff that really brings clarity to mm-hmm. some issues that they probably didn't, had never thought through. Um, so, yeah, that's why I wanted to do this episode. Next week we'll be back to something more probably typical of us or more familiar, which is we're going to talk through some some uh, some aspects of James' sermon last week and some conversations that me and James have just have been having back and forth just about how do we recover a sense of, of the greatness of God in, in our Christian lives and in the church. Um, I think that'll be uh, really helpful. Uh, but this week is just a fun way to, to really introduce you to church history, which we're going to be doing we're going to be doing more of on this podcast over the next year or so. Because you're so taking church ready. history classes. Well, one, because I want to do some stuff on the Trinity 
both on this podcast and in our church, and we need church history to do that well. So uh-huh. I'm plugging so, my own stuff. So uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna uh, I'm in a sense I'm gonna lay some. So topics I have given you. I sent James a list of different topics or, or myths or legends or things that we need to think through in church history um, mm-hmm. for him to just choose at random to talk about, even though I kind of told him what I wanted to do first. <laughs> so I'm saying that up front. Um, and I think it'll pique your interest, this one. Yeah, so um, you want to talk about uh, Christmas in May. I do. I was going to uh, say Christmas in summer, but you've deflated that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you want to start with Santa Claus? Is that... I do. I would like to start with Old St. Nick. Okay, so I want you, the way I want you to do this for us is frame the myth. Some people may or may not have heard the myth. Ooh. So tell, d- deliver the sort of, here's, the, here's, a, the, here's a popularized one. narrative or story or, or mm-hmm. a piece of church history that is commonly believed, widely promo, uh, uh, spread or, or mm-hmm. uh, whatever, and... Um, and then you'll correct it for us. Yeah. So this, the first one, and this isn't this the story of every uh, scholar? It's it's complex. You know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> okay. So Saint Nick, which everyone thinks of as the the white jolly bearded uh, gift giver. Yes, the gift giver coming down from, the chimney, riding the reindeer. Yes. Yes. I th- so we picture him as Saint Nick from like Russia or something. It's how I think most of us are, are, are familiar with him as like a European um, white person. He was not. He was a real person. His name was Saint Nicholas of Myra, and he was around between the the third and fourth century. Um, and he was a bishop. He was a real bishop in the church. So have you known what a bishop was? No, no relation to Dwight Schrute. No relation. No genealogical tracing <laughs> of the bishopry. <laughs> but a bishop was an overseer of churches. Think of like a superintendent of some denominations, like oversaw pastors um, in a city or a region, you know, that sort of thing. And he was a real person in Turkey. So that should change how you think of what Santa Claus looks like. Uh, Santa Claus More Middle Eastern. More Middle Eastern for sure, yes. And he was a bishop of the, of the church. And so that's probably what you, what you know. Here's a, myth that probably you, that, here's a myth that you probably don't know about, but, I, but it's an awesome myth that I wish was true. Okay? <laughs> Which I is why we tell true. it. Yes. Well, first let me start. It is true that St. Nick was thought to be a gift giver, thought to be very kind to children, would, would, uh, would do a lot for the poor, those sorts of things. Um. But the, the, the main myth in many circles that comes around at Christmas, I see it. I, I've seen it. on My wife has showed it to me on Facebook, people sharing it. Um, it's kind of a nerdy myth. But it's that St. Nick, who was alive during this time, uh, he went to the Council of Nicaea, okay, which I'm going to explain in a second. Uh, the Council, well, let me give you a, a brief overview. The Council of Nicaea, all the bishops got together, were summoned together to... Uh, settle a dispute over if Jesus was truly and fully God in the same way that the Father was truly God. And I, and I may explain that in a second. And it was stirred up by this guy named Arius, who was another pastor in Africa. And so his, his guys got together and all the bishops got together and they had this big kind of council where they all basically argued their positions from Scripture and, and, and worked through these things. And when Arius, the guy who... who does not believe that Jesus is fully God. That he, he believes he's more than human, 
but he's not fully God. He's something less than the Father, something less than God. The story goes that Saint Nick, your Santa Claus, while that man was was saying Jesus was not fully Jolly God. Jolly Saint Nick. Jolly Saint Nick got up and just punched Arius straight in the mouth. <laughs> punched him straight in the knocked him out as he was spewing heresy. <laughs> That is, I'm not kidding. I see that story. Which, by the around. way, is the way we should, we should settle all theological disputes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're so. Well, I don't. This is so bad. I would not. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I was going to say something about when Jehovah Hoa's witnesses knock on your door. <laughs> <laughs> don't, oh, don't, no, don't do his old Saint Nick. Mytho- mythologically did. Yes. So here's what he. Here's the truth about the myth. No, he did not punch him in the face. No haymaker. But Santa Claus was at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> he was 100% there. He's on the list that we have of, of attendees, and there's no reason to think he wouldn't. He would have been around 55 during this time. He was a bishop. and uh, he this, was, was, this was pre-reindeer. Santa was Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Santa was not an Aryan. He was on the, on the Orthodox side of, of history. And, um, yeah, so your boy Santa... Was an Orthodox bishop, but no, he did not punch Arius, the Jesus uh, divinity denier, in the face. Yeah, <laughs> he was for the hypostatic union of Christ. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, that's myth number one. Um, there you go. Thank you for clearing that up. I know many of us will sleep better tonight. You might. And we'll have uh, a little bit more fun come Christmas. Well, twenty twenty one. You're going to notice it now. You're going to see. Well. We probably don't follow the same medias, but <laughs> but you're going to see you you'll picture it. There's a lot of Christians who post about this that Saint Nick punched Aries in the face and stuff, and you know, well, he was there, but no, yeah. he didn't. He didn't slobber. We probably didn't don't clobber. follow the same media. We probably don't. Uh, read the I'll same probably posts. be watching 13 more newly freshly minted Hallmark-ish. Yeah, that's romantic comedy Christmas role. movies around that time, no, rather than reading more Saint Nick Christmas myths. Okay, um, next, uh, let's can we stick with Nicaea? Yes, I there's would a like few to things surrounding Nicaea. Nicaea. So can, let's talk about the Trinity at Nicaea, which it turns out, as our Trinitarian theology would suggest, that um, that God eternal exists eternally in three persons. Yes, uh, that. Uh, the Trinity did not originate at Nicaea. Yeah, yeah. So there's like a bundle of these uh, topics that that are connected to Nicaea that I sent James as part of the, the list he could choose from. Because I think Nicaea is one of the most important times and places in it's a pivot moment, right? In the church in church history. It's also the most misrepresented and probably where the most myths about church history come from. Um and is employed by many people um, and groups outside of Christianity against Christianity. So here's some here's some broad things in terms of, of the Trinitarian issue at Nicaea. So and I'm and here's here's why this is important. A lot of you are probably thinking, this is a strange conversation. I've never really heard of Nicaea. I don't know who Arius is. You just told me Santa Claus was there. Like, there's all these things. I don't think that's a very good thing for the church, that we don't know a lot about this. Because what came out of the Nicene controversy, the, the statement, confession of the church 
Universal. Which we'll read it before the end of this. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Um, that came out of, out of that event and that controversy uh, is something that we at Generations and all Orthodox Christians uh, affirm. affirm. And if we don't affirm, we are not Christians. We're not Christians. Yeah, we, yeah. And we don't believe in a Trinitarian God in the way the Bible talks about it if we don't take that language in the Nicene Creed seriously. And I know that that's really hard to think about because we as a lot of evangelical type folks are not, we weren't taught and thought through these things very well. We were, we were a lot more biblicist in our way of thinking. Um, and so this is why this is really important because we don't know a lot about it. Yeah, explain that just because it, it would it would seem on the surface uh, that being biblicist, mm-hmm. being committed to the Bible, yeah, would be yeah. Let's we should be that. Yeah, and yet you use that in a negative connotation. I did. So, uh, so explain that. Biblicism would be the, the the bad fruit of of the the idea of scripture alone that the reformers themselves would have uh, would have been horrified of. Um, And what I mean by that is the idea that all we need is just myself as an individual and the Bible to understand and know and think through all of the different doctrines, especially the very grand and big and mysterious doctrines in the Bible without the, the guidance and help of those who came before us and the leaders in church history who worked through some of the controversy for us in a way and brought language out of the Bible that actually protects mm-hmm. what's in the Bible. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, it would be the dangers of approaching Christianity with a, a private inter- private personal interpretation as mm-hmm. a sufficient grid through which to read and understand and apply the scriptures. Yes, and thinking, of, thinking you can come up with your own ways of talking right. about some of these things and yes. not realizing that there was literally controversies and and battles within the church in history, and the language that came out of those actually protects us from coming up with new language about yeah. very old truths in the Bible. Yeah, so one of the things, um, this is a, a very um, scholarly idea, the way that I'm going to put it, is that um, when you do theology on your own, it lends itself to weirdness. Yes. So don't do that. Yes. <laughs> it's bad. Yes. It, it, it's a, a dysfunctional way to do theology, yeah. right? So. And some of us may think of, because we're so unfamiliar with the idea of creeds and confessions, that we don't have any or we don't need any. And uh, in a sense, we're not as confessional as some other types and denominations of churches, but we have a confession. Yeah, we just did a membership class on Sunday. We went through our statement of faith, read through that, talked through that at length, yeah. took, did some question and answer, and had a great conversation. Everything that in that statement that you went through in the membership class, particularly around the doctrine of God mm-hmm. and, the, and the doctrine of, of the person and work of Jesus, is obviously derived from the Bible. But yeah. the language is derived from the creeds and confessions we're talking about right now in Nicaea. Yeah, much of, much of the uh, yeah much of the idea is the language is borrowing from even like we don't ours isn't reduced to let's say the you Council didn't of Nicaea. You sit down and come up with new language. Yeah, no, we we are borrowing from the language of those who have gone before us yes. and who have fleshed these things out yes. faithfully and diligently and rigorously. Um, 
and who on whose shoulders we stand very much. Yeah. So. Okay, so with all that kind of background, the here's the myth. There's a myth, and, I, and I've heard it in dialogue with uh, our Muslim friends. Um, me and Paul Ulrich actually had many hours of Dr. dialogue. Ulrich. Dr. Ulrich. With, uh, with, a, with a Muslim friend last summer. And this is, I'm going to, to phrase how he presented this myth to me. Um, because it's a very big uh, idea, both in some popular uh, media and particularly Muslims. Uh, I'm not generalizing here, but I'm saying many Muslims are taught this and given this as, a, as an idea of what happened to Christianity around Nicaea. That when uh, Nicaea happened, the, the council where all these people came together, all these bishops came together and, and fleshed this out, was in 325. This is a little bit after Constantine, the emperor, um, converted to Christianity around 312. He was the, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and uh, it, was a, it was a huge deal. I mean, they had been, uh, the Christians, our brothers and sisters, had been under immense persecution. The worst persecution in church history was right before this period, during the Diocletian era and those sorts of things. And, um, and so he converts, Constantine converts to Christianity, and he, he doesn't make Christianity the, the write-off. He doesn't make it the, the state religion. He, he actually, for the first time in the Roman Empire, kind of had a religious freedom idea um, that the church hadn't seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he becomes a Christian. He's a young Christian, all these things. And, and all the, the language about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, like there was no, dis- there was no controversy over calling those uh, distinguishable persons. But a, a, a dispute arose with the guy Arius we were talking about in the churches um, saying that Jesus, yes, he is, um, he's he has godlike powers. He's divine in some way. He uh, he has God's authority and all these things. And he's more than human, but he's something different than the Father in essence, mm-hmm. in being. I don't know. How, I don't know a better way to say that. In nature, maybe is a good way to put that. That he's something different than the Father. He's something less than the Father. That that actually that he, though he he's not a human. He he's something more than that. He was a created. Mm-hmm. The father had to create a son, you know. So they were taking those terms, father and son, and basically saying, "Well, that's how humans work. Father, a father has to create a son, right?" So, um, and they were kind of doing some strange things with some passages, and the, and and they said the father created the son in time, mm-hmm. and uh, and so this dispute rises up, and Constantine doesn't. He's a young Christian, and he's getting all these people together uh, to talk about this because he doesn't. He, um, as this new emperor of a, of a, of a, in, within a Christian uh, free world now, he doesn't know what to do. And so let me just paint this picture. I think it's a beautiful one. Go ahead. Uh, well, I think it begs the question, like, why didn't he start a podcast? <laughs> well, he called a council. <laughs> called a council. Yeah, I don't think they okay. would have bantered very well. When they yeah, got that's there. probably true. But think about this. Uh, this is, I think this <laughs> is... We've been punching each other in the face. So he calls this council, and there was... Uh, I forget. I think there's like 1,800 maybe bishops that were, it was sent to, but only about 300 or so sh- could show up. Mm-hmm. And so they all get together, and Constantine, the the, the emperor of the uh, of the Roman Empire, who had just who that that office 
had persecuted Christians for a, a considerable a time before that. Least, right? Well, in a, in a concentrated way in the last century. Yeah. Um, he comes out and meets all of these bishops, and many of them had scars and were limping and had uh, physical ailments that they'd have for their entire lives because of the persecution of the Roman Empire just a few decades before. Mm-hmm. So think about that for Christian brothers and sisters for the first time, standing in the in the in the in the presence of of this office that had just absolutely Abused terrorized yeah. those people. That's an interesting thought to think through in history. Mm-hmm. And he comes out and he affirms them and he says, "I don't know the answer to this, basically, but we need to figure this out. So you guys, I'm not a theolo- you guys need to figure this out." And um, so they worked through these biblical texts. They worked through the language. They looked worked through the arguments. Um, of the church before them, and they put together a statement that clarifies an issue. Mm-hmm. That is not the same thing as someone coming in and inserting the Trinity into the Bible. Yeah, I mean, so a better way of thinking of it would be um, the Trinity, like the word Trinity, for instance, right? We know never appears in the scriptures. Yes, uh, but, uh, so, so a helpful thing here is to think that word had developed long before Nicaea as well. It first shows up in a guy named Tertullian, so that's not a new idea. Mm-hmm. I think the helpful thing is that doctrine and what we know and, and what we flesh out about God and Christ and all of these things in Scripture, it gets more clarified in mm-hmm. the midst of controversy. Right. When someone brings a, a question or, a, or an accusation to, uh, to doctrine, that's when you really clarify it. Think of, I mean that's just that's just how it works, mm-hmm. um, and that what was that's what was happening at Nicaea clarification because an issue arose, not a new idea that the church suddenly had. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is that the uh, the the word Trinity maybe was uh, not in the scriptures, but the reality of the Trinity is all over the scriptures, and what Nicaea was doing was grappling with. Uh, language to make sense of what the text, what the biblical text teaches us about the nature and the the person and the character of God. And yeah. I mean, before that, it, a common statement was the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the, the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father. So there was already a distinction and a high view of, of God um, and a worship of Jesus as Christ, even in the earliest writings of the New Testament, mm-hmm. and the hymns we have in the New Testament, which for everybody listening who goes to Generations, we're going to be preaching on the on Christology and the deity of Christ in June, so be looking forward to that, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about this issue. Um, but what the Arian controversy, which led to Nicaea in 325, uh, what it exposed was we need to really determine and, and identify from the Bible, is the Son co-equal and co-eternal with the Father? Mm-hmm. Is he of the same substance, the same essence, the same being? The word that they used was homoousius, which means same substance. The, it, literally the difference between, so Nicaea and the controversy went for a few decades, basically. And uh, the difference between some of the, the people who were trying to compromise in the end and those who stood orthodox was the, the difference of one letter, mm-hmm. one letter in that word. The, the ones who wanted to be kind of semi-Aryan, they said, no, he's homoousius, meaning 
he's like the Father, but not the same. Mm-hmm. The difference was one letter, and it, uh, it was the Greek letter iota, which is our kind of I, I. if you want it. And uh, they, st- many in in the midst of a big controversy, particularly Athanasius, another church father, and others, stood up and held to orthodoxy that Jesus is the same essence as the Father. He's co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. We basically are saying that. Nicaea and what many councils and churches, uh, church confessions did in those early years was to clarify points of confusion um, by interpreting the scriptures and providing language that, that, uh, that safeguards the doctrines of the church, of the apostles, in the face of error. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about it, not in terms of creating new things, but actually fleshing out in deeper ways questions that they hadn't had to wrestle with as deeply before. Right, yeah. And so Nicaea didn't create the Trinity. Nicaea clarified the Trinity. They affirmed the Trinity. Affirmed what was there in Scripture already. And and, uh, gave us deeper language. They really were working off the Apostles' Creed, which came before that, and were, were basically adding to the Apostles' Creed to bring more clarification about the Son specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... Hit me with another one. Another, another one. one. Well, okay, so we were talking about Constantine yeah. because of the Council of Nicaea. So I'm going to jump out of the Council sure. into this, that Constantine changed the day of worship to Sunday because that was the day of the sun god. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure Seventh-day Adventists like to throw this one around if I'm... In, uh, maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe it's another group. But the, the idea is that as Constantine kind of Christianizes the empire, according to some, that uh, that he changed that the early that the church had worshipped before that on the Sabbath and were, were Sabbatarians and those sorts of things. Um, but the truth is, we have pretty good evidence that the church worshipped on Sunday because it was the Lord's Day. Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Uh, and because it was the first day of the week, which is a symbol of Christ inaugurating a new uh, a new beginning, a new era, a new kingdom in the world. So there was some significance to the first day of the week in that way yeah. as well. Now, there was, there was a lot of Jewish Christians who grappled with this issue early on. Who were, were, you know, and it was a hard thing to figure out, you know, Sabbatarianism. You know, we we know from the Book of Acts the the conflicts in terms of how what do we do with the Jewish law, those sorts of things. So there was some controversy there in terms of I think some Jewish Christians really held on to the Sabbath in in terms of worship and those sorts of things. Um, but the early church in general was pretty. So we can thank focused. the early church for our Sunday worship rhythm, not Constantine. Yeah, there's plenty of people who wanna who wanna. Uh, I want to thank the earlier church that they get to watch college football on Saturday. <laughs> so, uh, all right, let's move to one that maybe is a little nearer, approximately, historically Ooh. to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we might jump back to something further again, but but just for the sake of, uh, of, of more um, familiarity. The founding fathers, that is, of America, the United States, were Bible-believing Christians determined to create a Christian nation. Yeah, I mean, this is a hot issue, right? There's a lot of there's Yeah, a lot this of is opinions. a hot-button one that I'm throwing you right now. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> Caleb's hot takes. I'm this changing is, the name of the episode. Changing it's no longer Church History Mills. It's now takes. Caleb's hot takes. No. Um, this is one that a lot of people get frustrated about, or, or you, you see a lot written 
in polar opposites on this particular issue in terms of uh, the founding of our nation, those sorts of things, particularly the founding fathers, the, the writers of the Declaration of Independence and, and those guys and such. Uh, the truth is that they weren't atheists, but most of them were not, and many of them were not necessarily evangelical Christians that we would think of. Right. Um, so usually when you read articles about this, you see either, oh, they were totally godless, or, man, that this was Billy Graham in a wig, you know? <laughs> in a wig or as part yes, of the wig in party? In a wig. <laughs> Um, so, so, so trying to like pin them in our modern categories of secular or kind of conservative Christian, I think, is really problematic. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably layering on something to them that is uh, that is unfortunate. Um, a lot of them. Here's the truth: there were some who were. Uh, it's really a mixed bag. There were some who were. Yeah, sure. Who were Trinitarian Christians? A lot of them were deists. Some of them were deists. Some of them were Unitarians. I know John Adams, particularly his church. They were one of the first Unitarian bodies. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin was more deist. Um, Thomas, Jefferson Thomas Jefferson was definitely a deist. Yeah. Um, those sorts of things. But that is not the same thing as secular. That's not the same thing as atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make them evangelical Christians, but it doesn't have clean cut lines like we think it does. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin basically called himself a thorough deist. Um, they re- a lot of them really down, and this is where the something like the Enlightenment, which if you if our listeners know about, it, it was a period of time in the um, 18th, 19th century, particularly where well, 17th century as well, where uh, you have you know the kind of conflicting natures of science and different uh, autonomous movements of man and how they thought and those sorts of things. We're all conflicting on these guys in terms of trying to mesh religion with some of those ideas. So that's what you get in a lot of them is a meshing of the Enlightenment and Christianity. Um, And so a lot of them focused on deistic ideas that focused on you know, the flourishing of man. It would be far more fair, correct me if I'm wrong, if you think I'm wrong, to say that the Judeo-Christian moral or value system greatly gave shape to a lot of... Oh, that's unquestionable. I mean, so that seems obvious, and and we can say that and feel good about it. But to say that they were distinctly Christian or intending to set up a distinctly Christian nation... No, yeah, particularly Jefferson, he he really wanted wanted a deist nation, is Mm -hmm. what he really wanted, and that's what he wrote about. Um, But again... We have to temper this with James is absolutely right that the the ideas and foundations of our documents and those who founded them only make sense to the founders themselves in the idea that there is a transcendent God who has moral standards and human rights and dignity and those sorts mm-hmm. of things, that all in that framework. It was not a secular framework. So let me quote uh, uh, Jefferson himself, the deist who we're talking about, who did not believe in miracles, didn't believe in divinity of Christ, definitely hate, did not like the Trinity at all. But he says this, he says... Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? Mm-hmm. So I think trying to employ those two polar extremes between like thoroughly conservative Christian and and, uh, and thoroughly secular or atheist is, is just has nothing to do with the actual history. But to not recognize that these men were working from unconsciously a Christian worldview and also explicitly naming that these ideas really only make sense with uh, a God um, in a 
at least a monotheistic way. Um, yeah, and this is unquestionable to I me. May, I may edit this out. I'm going to say it, though, and then we'll decide if I edit it out. <laughs> uh, like, there, one of the places where I've seen this just in recent, like, developments, right, is I have heard and, and seen uh, pastors and political activists um, uh, or influencers or figures uh, talk explicitly about Christian, uh, about America entering into a covenant with God at our founding or inception, mm. and that we have been a covenant people of God that have strayed from our covenant with God. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where some of that mythology takes on some some pretty uh, problematic Yeah, I mean, that, I, I think that was a default position growing up myself mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid in conservative Christian circles was that you know, these guys would have preached at my church when most mm-hmm. of them couldn't be members at my church, <laughs> um, right? Yeah. So, um, and so this would just reiterate the 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 value yeah. of the uniqueness of the institution of the church as yes. the only covenant people yeah. of God, while also valuing that the spillover of the Christian worldview and the Christian Ethic idea and, itself yeah. um, is through and through the highest forms of liberty and ideas that mm-hmm. we have in our founding documents. Sure. I mean, so I, I was looking at, at a historian who, who was documenting all the scripture references within our founding documents and different writings of the founding fathers. And Deuteronomy was the top book of these guys. These guys were all through the law and this stuff. Like just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just yeah. through and through. And, and well, I and referenced I, a couple of weeks ago in Micah, how George Washington over something like 50 times in correspondence and writings absolutely. and speeches referenced Micah. I have a quote uh, from him saying it right here. Yeah. So my, yes. My, so, uh, James is referencing George Washington talking about Micah six, eight, which James preached on this past Sunday was a huge verse for many of the founding fathers. Hmm. They, that they really liked that. Now they didn't end up, Many of them didn't end it with saying, this is fulfilled in, in Christ, right? <laughs> but they, those ideas themselves were very influential yeah. um, in them. And, and Jefferson, actually, he says this in, a, in, a, in anticipation of his retirement um, as the chief of the army. He leaves this as his parting advice, basically, to Washington. He says, if we, if we hope to become a flourishing, happy nation, Americans must be disposed to do justice, to love mercy, and to m- demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and passive, pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. <laughs> so I think the, the verdict is, no. Was it founded as a conservative Christian nation by conservative Christian founding fathers? It was a mixed bag, but yeah. no. Yeah. But our, our entire society is through and through awash and really founded upon structures that makes sense only in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. I got three more uh, that I'd like to try to touch on out of the several more that are available to me. Okay. I, we might only get to two. Let's see how we do. So the first one I'll go to from here is the early church had love feasts as communion, Ooh, not formal bread and wine in a worship service. So therefore, we should be sharing a meal every Sunday. Yes. So, the, uh, Or at least if we're going to call it communion. Out, you hear this talked about a lot, the, the idea of love feasts in the, in the early church as as something so organic and, and great in comparison to how we do communion today as something very formal in the worship service, just the, the cup and the juice, um, you know, where it's summoned you know, and all those sorts of things. Uh, the, the truth is those are conflated terms. Um, love feasts were not the same thing as taking communion in the early church. The evidence we have is that 
there was something in the worship service where they took the bread and the wine um, uh, that was distinct from a love feast, mm-hmm. which was the church getting together. And I think there's a lot of uh, confusion on what a love feast was. So a love feast was not just the church getting together for a meal and, and kind of fellowshipping and kind of a last supper idea. It was not. Love feasts in the early church were them getting together with lots of food and providing for needy people within their community so that everyone would have something. Mm-hmm. So it was really more of a charity idea. Now, they had communal meals, and that's definitely that was definitely going on and everything. But love feasts is not equated with communion. Those are distinct things in the early church. And love feasts were not just you and all your pals getting together for a, for a good meal at church. Hmm. So okay. that was short and sweet. All right. Um... I want to let's go um, something dark and then something controversial. Uh, Christians were martyred in the Colosseum. Ooh. Okay, so we've we're probably used to thinking that Christians were the were the kind of the the meat in the Colosseums for the lions and the and the the gladiators and those sorts of things. I mm-hmm. think there's a deleted scene in the movie uh, the gladiator that portrays Christians being. Uh, uh, murdered in the Colosseum. But it's deleted, I'm, so we don't know. I think that's true. Um, but or, or, or this could be myths of uh, Hollywood deleted scenes. It could be. It could be. A future episode. Well, Russell Crowe's definitely done some Bible myth movies, hasn't he? Yeah, he did Noah's Ark, didn't he? He did. I never saw it. So. <laughs> there were some strange things was, in that uh, movie. Yeah. But, some uh, creative liberties, as they say. But So we're used to kind of portraying that, and we see a lot of... Per- portrayals of that, particularly in the medieval period, and so that's where that comes out. Um, the truth is we don't really have any evidence of, of Christians being in the Colosseum itself, being this kind of food for lions and those sorts of things. Um, Which isn't to downplay the no, level not. of martyrdom there the was violence against in those They were being martyred, just not yeah. in those places. Yeah. Um, that, the, really, the, 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 the base of that is when during Nero's reign in his circus, that's where Christians were being used in those kind of comical ways as martyrs and those hmm. sorts of things. But they were being cut off and, and burned at the stake, and Christians were all throughout that time period, just right. not necessarily that Colosseum idea where they're kind of with the gladiators and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other one I wanted to hit on then was differing views of the seven days of Genesis only came in response to Darwin Ooh. in the 19th century. You want to take that one off? <laughs> Well, you brought we it up, We are out of time. You brought it up, James. <laughs> I know this is a hot issue, and this is not... Uh, th- what I'm about to say is not me telling you there, uh, a, a theological view. I'm just talking about church history at this point. There's a common idea that before the modern era, particularly the 19th century, that all Christians in history saw the the Genesis days of creation as literal seven days um, where God created the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was just an absolute blanket view. Um, and side note, this is just a note on church history. If anyone starts a church history conversation and with the term, everyone in the past believed this. They're lying or they're wrong. That's not true. <laughs> history is stubborn. It has lots of views. It's complex. The, the idea that, that there's just blanket answers to things is just not true. Mm-hmm. And so that, that idea uh, gets purported um, about the, the, the view of the first chapter of Genesis 
that basically in response to Darwin, the church had to start coming up with new ways to, to think through uh, creation and such. Um, that's not true. Uh, there was definitely, there was lots of people who, who thought... Reported that. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe even the majority view was seven-day creation um, idea. But we have countless examples of people who were, uh, were interpreting the text in a more complex and, uh, and different way than creationism. Particularly, probably the most influential Christian early church father in the West ever, Augustine. He, uh, he had a different take on, on that issue, and uh, I, I actually find it very well-written and well-understood. So you have uh, different people with complex views on that subject. So the, 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 mo- the, the more consistent, it would be more uh, faithful and consistent and accurate, not to say that um, you know, Christians have always believed this on, on some of these things, like on creation, it uh-huh. would be more faithful to say Christians have always had a range of views yeah, uh, particularly, within particularly around the, this the six or seven days of creation. Yeah. Yes. Um, and what, here's why I think that's important. Even, for, even, if you, even if you're someone who's a seven-day creationist, here's why I think that's important, um, is the idea that the church got blindsided by modern science and had to start and it became unraveled after that in terms of its com- uh, of complexity of views. It kind of had to leave its one view. I think, I think is it it hinders the the complexity of of Christianity, and I think shows this conversation as a response conversation rather than a conversation that was going on long before um, modern science and those sorts of things. That understanding the text is not something that that is a response to science. It's actually something where we're actually dealing with the text itself, and people are digging deeply into that, not just as how do we figure it out with science. And I think church history helps us not not lead to that sort of reactionary type idea within Genesis itself. All right. I think uh, I don't know that we have any more time. There, you said that there was one that you were going to refer to you were going to surprise me with something and that never came. So oh, I guess I didn't the, ask I was, the right I, I, one. But you knew about it, the George Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the Micah right. 6. Yeah. I thought you'd like I that. I was told there was a little surprise in one of these for me if I <laughs> if I picked it. Um, yeah. So I guess we did. Um, do you want to hit on the King James Bible? That's do I want to hit point. on the... Yeah, how many minutes? What are we at? We're at... Uh, Something around 51, 52 minutes. Okay, so um, I think... King James Bible, here's the myth. This is a simple one. Is the oldest, most reliable translation. Yeah, so I I remember just unconsciously having this view as a kid um, that, oh, the King James is the oldest English translation I've ever seen. So therefore, this is kind of the original. And uh, uh, it's kind of, when I want the real thing, when I want the oldest thing, I go to the, the King James Bible. Um, that's simply not true. And here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to disparage the King James Bible. The King James Bible is an incredible translation that was done by, uh, in very, it was done by very good people and very, and they did it very well with the, with the materials that they had. Um, the truth is that the King James Bible only had a certain number of manuscripts of the original text, of the original language, to work with to uh, gain insight into how they did the translation. Whereas our modern translations, things like NIV, ESV, NLT, uh, 
NASB, those sorts of things. They have a much wider uh, grasp of the manuscripts and availability to use those manuscripts that we have that are, that are many of them much older and much broader than what the King James translators had. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can have more confidence that we're probably uh, getting... So we're working from the same original or the, the same manuscripts and wider, more manuscripts in current translations. Yeah, and, and we have older manuscripts and more manuscripts for our modern translations than the King James translators had. Right, and it's not as if we're our modern translations are translations of the King James Bible no. in modern vernacular. Except for or, the new King James. That is right. based off of the King James Bible. Um, but I think that's important because I, I, I don't want people to think there's like this line of transmission from the King James to the others. Though the King James definitely has bearings on our, on our, on our, on our modern translations. Um, the truth is we can have more confidence today in our modern translations that we're getting what the, uh, the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers wrote down than in any time in history because of the amount of manuscripts that we have and the faithful scholars and scholarship that has gone into Bible translations, particularly in the last couple hundred years, mm -hmm. has just been absolutely fine. So you're on the brink of church history in the fall? Right, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, our very own Atlanta zone, Mount Vernon zone. Uh, um, <laughs> Aaron Mazur. Aaron, sorry, no, what? Aaron Minikoff. Yeah, Aaron Minikoff. Thank you, uh, pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church. So he'll yeah. be you'll be taking that class. So uh, there is the uh, seminary level uh, books that you're reading for church history. If you were to assign uh, or recommend a popular level faithful church history rendering, that would be uh, within the grasp uh, and, and reasonable reach of people like me and us, uh, what would you recommend? Uh, or so short and sweet, Church History Made Easy by Timothy Paul Jones. Church History Made Easy by Timothy Paul Jones. We'll link to the show notes. Yes. Something a, a little more dense, but I think very, very good and very thorough, but also very accessible is uh, uh, any of the church history series by Nick Needham. Nick Needham. We'll, we'll link to it in the Brother show. of Jimmy Needham. <laughs> no? No. Okay. Not brother of Jimmy Not Needham. If you listen Jimmy to Jimmy Needham. Needham. <laughs> That's funny. Well, hey, guys, I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed the, I, the would, church history a little bit. Can you, uh, just one last point, can you, yeah. uh, Greg Allison's book on historical theology, helpful reference? No? I mean, it's good. It's a big one. I haven't. So I, I, I'm thinking of that as maybe a theology, reference, not as one that historical is, theology is different from church history in that it's he's probably dealing with the development of doctrine in okay. that book throughout the. So like what we're talking about with Nicaea, yeah. he's probably working through the development of some of those things. Okay. Whereas so that would be a, a way to the, understand what the church has believed throughout history, how uh, our our beliefs or uh, statements and stuff have developed over time within different eras and, and such. That's Yeah, uh, maybe a, a more midway, middle way between church history and, and historical theology would be uh, In the Year of Our Lord by Sinclair Ferguson, where okay. he like goes through the big developments in each century Cool. Um, in one chapter. All right, so we'll link to some of those in the show notes yeah. uh, if you're the kind of person who wants to follow those up. Hope this was fun, helpful, insightful, uh, provocative. Yeah. Anything else? I just hope you enjoyed picturing Santa Claus 
clocking a heretic. Lay, <laughs> a haymaker to the face. And uh, That's we, my kind of Santa Claus. We give you know? permission. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> try to... Um, Try to not punch the people you disagree with. We think that would be the most loving way to conduct hey, yourselves. Hey, and if you, if you have any big church history questions that you'd love us to talk about, send them to us. That would be fun. Peace out, guys.